Welcome to Wishes Granted. I'm Kyle, and today I talk with Mika Marple, who is an NFT artist. What is an NFT, you ask? Let me explain. An NFT is a new way to create a contract using a blockchain such as Ethereum. If terms NFT or blockchain or Ethereum or Bitcoin are new to you, then probably you want to read up on it a little before listening to this episode to fully understand what we're talking about. You could just Google that. But I'll give you a short explanation here as an example. When I lived in Kenya, there was always a problem determining who owned what piece of land. You could often find signs on land that said, land not for sale, because someone with a fake title deed might try to sell your land out from under you. This is because it's very hard to determine who has the correct title deed and who doesn't in Kenya and in many parts of the world. Someone in the land registry in the government office could be bribed to create a fake title deed, so it's impossible to know which title deed is correct. People end up in court fighting over who owns what piece of land. Well, NFTs solve this by putting the contract for a piece of land or a piece of art or any other item of value on the blockchain. We can be absolutely certain which title deed is the authentic one, so there's never any question about who owns what piece of land. Okay, this hasn't yet happened for land in Kenya, but I expect it will someday, and it is being implemented for art already. So I thought it'd be very interesting to talk to an artist making NFT art as a way to inspire other entrepreneurs to think about how they can put contracts for things on the blockchain. In addition to having very clear ownership, another benefit of NFTs is they're very easy to trade. You don't need to mail the title deed to anyone. You can just send it to them digitally on the blockchain. Mika has done art in the real world and in the digital world. And recently she had her NFT art sold in a benefit auction for a nonprofit, which is how this all ties back to social enterprise work and funding. I hope you enjoy this episode. And if it feels like your mind is melting, it's just because you're learning a lot really, really fast. You're going through the same experience the rest of us went through when we were trying to wrap our heads around what an NFT is. I promise that it's worth the journey. Some NFT art has sold for over $60 million, which clearly shows there must be something more to this than just magic internet money. There's something great going on here. So strap in and enjoy this interview with Mika Marple. Mika, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is going to be the first time some people have heard of NFTs before. And I wondered if you could share how you explain NFTs to people who are new. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So NFTs stands for non-fungible token. And it's anything digital built onto the blockchain. And being on the blockchain ensures it's one of a kindness. So basically, they're unique digital assets. And this is really huge. I used to be an art dealer too. And it's very hard to sell any video or sort of digital art because I think when people buy art, they want to, they really want it to be special and unique. And just the idea that something is like infinitely reproducible doesn't make people feel the urgency to own it. But now that there's a way for a digital image or video or anything digital to be as unique as a painting or a sculpture has really transformed the 
the art market and the art landscape. Yeah, for sure. It's so interesting how humans, when something scares humans, uh, are willing to pull the trigger more quickly, buy something, pay more for it. It's interesting how important that is to us. So what, what kind of art dealer were you? What kind of art did you deal in before? Contemporary, mostly emerging artists. I was co-owner of a gallery called Night Gallery in Los Angeles from 2011 to 2016. And Night Gallery is still around and they're very good, successful contemporary art gallery. Yeah, but I, I partnered with Davida, who's the current owner, when I was 25, and I really kind of learned a lot about the art market really fast at a pretty young age. And I wasn't making any art at the time. Only I came back to art making only four, four and a half, almost five years ago, actually. And it's been a real process of kind of, I don't know, like, not unlearning what I learned, but kind of making art in in the face of like all my deep inner knowledge <laughs> that I carry. Like, what is it? Like, I'm not, I can't claim to be naive. About what people buy, you mean? Oh, I just about all the, the, the mechanics and the sort of the like dark side of the art world, <laughs> like the price manipulation and the collector collusion and the sort of like, politics as a or art as like a stand-in for politics and you know there's wow just, how did you experience that that was in LA you experienced that yeah. art as a stand-in for politics collector manipulation yeah I mean I highly recommend there's a documentary that just came out called the lost Leonardo that's about the, the Salvador Mundi this this lost somehow like Leonardo da Vinci painting that was like discovered in Florida and then was auctioned, sold to for $150 million to, I guess, the, the prince, the head prince of um, Saudi Arabia. And he's, it's, it's just, it's like a very politically loaded move all around, all the parties involved with that. For a Saudi prince to buy a Leonardo is a politically loaded move. It's like a proxy war, like U.S. and Russia going at each other through some other war in Afghanistan or somewhere else. Is, is that the kind of thing? Our play or? They like in the same way, like sort of like Bobby Fischer, the chess player, like that was like when he was playing chess against the sort of like Russian, like it was about so much more than a single chess game, right? It was like about the Cold War and it was like about bigger things. Like I think these really high profile art sales I get used in much the same way. But and is that the case for many pieces of art or is that really just a few that have that political aspect or did you experience that as an art dealer as well? I'm not sure how um, high profile the work you were dealing with was. Well, no, I wasn't selling Leonardo da Vinci's. <laughs> no, no. But I no, I don't think quite on the same scale, but I think it does filter down into sort of all aspects of the art world. That's something that's interesting in NFTs is there's this kind of, it's kind of like there's an unsaid aspect of art, which is the, the kind of the power move. And it's hard to describe. I'm not even sure if I could write an essay to describe it, but you can feel it. And you can feel that with NFTs. There's pe people buy the NFTs. It doesn't feel very rational to buy a mm -hmm. crypto punk, let's say, but people really connect with it and they have a sense of belonging and a sense of community and a sense that they own something and they're part of this thing. They get this ticket that's scarce and people really seem to connect and like light, lights people up, gives people energy. Yeah. Yeah. 
the NFT sort of explosion has been really interesting and there's like a lot of good parts to it. And then there's a lot of, whenever there's like just boatloads of money, <laughs> there's going to be some like power dynamics at play that are not always favorable. But yeah, so I mean, I think in some ways it's great. Like a lot of digital artists and some of the aesthetic, like the sort of dominant aesthetic and a lot of NFT art that I think is inspired by comics and video games and sort of concert graphics is art that's not been taken seriously, I guess, by this kind of art historical canon. And I think that's just, that's just outdated. It's just not true. In some ways, these, like, way more people are impacted by video games than by a museum like the Met or even MoMA or something like that's not most people's like visual reference um, or it's not the, the kind of visual language they grew up on and it's there's something really elitist about that mm-hmm. aesthetic that I think NFTs is really actually challenging like quite openly and blatantly that said like the money it's also coupled with this like basically this new class of millionaire billionaires that's that's formed through DeFi. And now these are people that basically are the new emperors. <laughs> so, and they kind of, they want to see their values reflected wherever they go. And they're kind of putting like stamp, like the validation stamp on their values by like assigning a lot of high prices to it. I guess you've got the validation stamp as well, in some sense, that your work is valuable as well in the community <laughs> in NFTs, because now you, well, let's talk about your art. Yeah. So yeah. you've got your art on your website, really beautiful work. Personally, I really enjoy it. aesthetically, really pleasing Thanks. and conceptually uh, makes me smile. I think there's, there's a flower garden one. Erotic gardens. Series. Erotic gardens. <laughs> yes. The art that you recently had art that was sold as an NFT, Mm -hmm. it was a physical piece, Mm -hmm. right? Could you talk about that? I was part of this eight artist benefit NFT auction that included Beeple and Rafiq Anadol, some really high profile artists. And I had an NFT that was an image of my, just a physical painting I had made that went for the equivalent of like $25,000. And yeah, I mean, that was, I had a couple other NFTs sell for much less than that. There are also images of my paintings. I think at the time I, I'll just be totally honest. Like I didn't fully know what I wanted to do in the space, but I knew I wanted to participate. So this was basically, this is like my first idea, the first iteration of like how to participate, how to be a digital artist, I guess. And I did it and then it was successful and I actually wrote this article for Artsy that was about how NFTs can benefit artists because I was really trying to wrap my head and like I want to be involved but what's the meaning like what is the bigger idea here like what's the bigger value like how can I meaning meaningfully participate because I wasn't convinced that a JPEG of a painting was great <laughs> even though people were paying a lot of money for it um so the I, I wrote this article that was about like, oh, maybe, maybe NF, 
like the contract part of NFTs, the sort of smart contract, the self-enforcing coded in contract, like maybe that's the value and, and paintings in real life should be, every painting should have a corresponding NFT that's kind of like certificate of authenticity with a self-enforcing contract so that artists would get royalties whenever it sold and they would know where the painting is and who bought it. And so that was kind of like, that's, that's my, that makes sense to me. I can get behind that. But then the more time I spend on Twitter, uh, really getting to know this sphere and seeing what other people were doing in it and really seeing these collectibles, these sets of 10,000 unique avatars, I felt like new synapses forming in my brain. And it wasn't me trying to like map my traditional art brain onto these new tools. It was, it was like some original N NFT part of my brain formed. And I started thinking as an NFT artist, not as a traditional artist, trying to map my values onto NFTs. Collections of 10,000 pieces, they're often generated by a computer in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. They're not, it's not like artists has painted or created 10,000 JPEGs, but I'm not sure yeah. how they do it exactly, but I'm guessing it's like a, a wee icon uh, person where you're like mustache, it could have a mustache, could have a cigarette, could have a red shirt, could have a blue shirt, and then let's make a whole bunch of combinations. And then I'm not sure if it just makes 10,000 and then you stop there, or you make like 100,000, you select the ones you like the best and then make that your collection. Yeah, I do know a little bit how it works, but yeah, you, you come up with a set of attributes and then you, you code basically, yeah, some, something that like randomly combines them. And probably if you have enough variables, you'll, it'd be way more than 10,000. And yeah, it's basically like the code is like pulling a card and it pulls like 10,000 sort of random cards from this, from the, all the possible options. And I guess if you get one, you don't like, you could pull another one <laughs> until you mm -hmm. get 10,000. A collection that you're releasing soon. Is that right? Talk about that. Yeah. And I guess actually before I really get into it, I, I think what's interesting, it just occurred to me while you were talking that what's so interesting about these, these sets of 10,000 collectibles is that you really are introducing computing into the process and you're thinking almost more like a computer. And this is really new. And artists have a little bit been doing this in the past, but I think not as, like it's really highlighted by these sets of 10,000 collectibles because the sheer scale of that is kind of something only a computer could imagine. And so I just think it's like this with these collectibles, it's like a really interesting fusion of humans almost learning to think like a computer and using a computer, but also thinking like one. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it's like the computer becomes the paintbrush. This is the way I think about it. Mm -hmm. You correct me where I'm wrong, but for Leonardo da Vinci to paint what he painted, it required innovation in paints and paintbrushes. Like it wasn't possible before then to get that kind of detail and to get that kind of color and that kind of shading. There was new techniques that were developed and it couldn't have happened a hundred years before him. And so it was like, now we've got computers. How do we use computers as a paintbrush to what, what, what special attributes do they have? Well, you've got the paintbrush at all. You can do the perfect shading that you want. You can make something look totally lifelike. 
but there's something a computer can do, which a paintbrush can't, which is make these huge collection of unique things that each one appeals to a different person, but together as a collection, that's a community. And it kind of pulls people together in a way that everyone can own a piece of what would be the Mona Lisa, but except it's like a big piece. Everyone can own a bit of it and be part of that community, which is unique for computing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really cool sort of like the what computers are, I guess their inherent nature of a computer in the service of sort of creativity and community. Like at its best, I think that's what is going on with the collectibles. So my collectible is um, actually inspired by a series of in real life paintings. I always have to establish now, like what I'm talking about, a digital painting or an IRL painting. Yeah, talk about that. That's so, (laughs) your painting is so interesting. It's got such an interesting story. I'd love if you could share that, the background of that painting. Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. So I made a series of Medusa paintings in 2019. And they were all, they were all, I used statues of Medusa from like canonical statues of Medusa from sort of Italian art history. And really all of them are, well, no, two of them are like Medusa's decapitated head. And then one, which is by Bernini is a Medusa mid transformation as she's turning into a monster. But I actually didn't know this whole sort of open secret story about Medusa that she was raped by Poseidon when she was actually praying at a temple and then Poseidon's wife who's also a god Athena when she found out about this is the one who turned Medusa into a monster as we know her with the snakes for hair and the eyes that turned people to stone and banished her to a cave but yeah the Medusa that I think it's the most well-known or like the most well-known part of her story is when she's beheaded by Perseus. And anyway, I didn't know this part about the rape. And when I found out, I was just like, oh, that's, of course, that's why I'm drawing her because I could relate to, yeah. I mean, I think, I guess to back up, I had left the gallery and kind of like left the art world briefly and was feeling pretty alienated because I went from being in the center and being a very important person as an art dealer. And when I left, when I wasn't sort of serving other people or playing this role, I felt like I just got, (laughs) like I was no longer of value. And I kind of like saw a certain, like just my own disposability within the art world. And I think the problem at the time was that I believed it, but it was kind of, it was a, blessing really because it kind of forced me to find my own value inside myself and but anyway I related to this kind of banished monster of Medusa I kind of felt like that's how I felt about myself (laughs) and the rape thing is also something I identify with and the rape thing (laughs) and yeah so I really when I, I made these paintings they were just a Medusa sort of reframing Medusa as the not the antagonist but the protagonist as the sort of one we identify with as the central character in her own story so that's what was behind the paintings and then I'm now I'm making basically using a lot of the same drawings and sort of color palette, making 10,000 unique versions of these Medusas. Of her with, when she's transformed to a monster. Yeah, they're, they're the kind of same. So 
they're the same sort of like basically these like very classical looking medusas that are pretty androgynous and they're from a sculpture so they they have a kind of almost like frozen quality to them but yeah two like two of two of the like references are her beheaded and then one is mid-transformation the, the medusa story is it's the, i think the 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 rape of medusa that that was totally glossed over in classes. I, we had classes on Greek mythology and maybe it was because the age we were at, we were like sixth grade or something we were learning, but it feels like this is like an archetypal story of women or men who are raped that like that was, that gets glossed over. And then, and there's like not really being believed. And so you kind of become a monster and you're kind of are in the shadows and not really believed for what, what happened. I don't know. I'm not I'm probably projecting here, but that's that's what I got from remembering the story when you told it. It's like this person becomes a monster in not a literal sense, but like to society or something like that, not being believed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think no, it's definitely like a kind of microcosm of just what we do generally in society, skipping over unpleasant truths. Like no one wants to talk about how George Washington had slaves. Just and I think the problem is like we kind of make these editorial decisions based on like what we think is appropriate for the audience, but that becomes just that becomes the main narrative for the rest of our lives. It reminds me as well. There's a few revisiting history or revisiting old stories because I guess Medusa is a story, and you're revisiting the story and seeing drawing <laughs> new focus to it. One is Wicked the Musical, revisiting mm -hmm. Wizard of Oz. The two Wicked Witches, well, they actually are really misunderstood, right? Yeah. That's the Wicked Musical. And then Circe about in Odysseus on the Odyssey, he goes to this island and I guess he, he meets this witch and or yeah, sorceress them, maybe is a better way to say it. Who, the Madeline Miller book. Is yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. I such a big fan of her work. It's really, really. I'm just such a beautiful writer, and then also the the sort of the larger ideas that she's working with are so good. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a general trend. Like, yeah, even with the most recent Cruella movie, right? It's kind of like, well, how? Why did someone become a monster or a monster? Like, what's the backstory? Because I think there's like a, it's becoming more generally accepted that people aren't just born monsters or quote unquote monsters. Something happened to them usually. And that something happened to them is not usually their fault. And so I, and I think this can get, I, it's great to see this kind of shift because I think even from when I was a kid that this was not the case. This was not sort of, part of the common sort of collective consciousness. But yeah, kind of an interest in backstories and an interest in wondering why people that we think are bad people, how did they get that way? And why do we think they're a bad person? Like what's the context that we're missing? And with Medusa, it's like, there couldn't have been a more good person or at least in that moment, she couldn't have been more innocent in a sense. She was in a temple praying, right? It's like the perfect um, archetype for this of someone you hear about who's seems to be evil, who seems to be the the monster, but 
I, I think yeah, it's, she's like relatively blameless in a in a sense. I mean, so, there's some there's some like stories where she she's like vain or something like that. Like she was the most shame beautiful. On her. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the like rape is the penalty for some vanity. Like, what does that say about how we treat women and view women and just society in general? It's a, there's a complicated story there. And it seems like the NFT actually, the more and more you talk about it, the more and more it makes sense to have it be a collection, a community of people who own this, who can relate to each other. It's kind of like having NFT is like a, as a profile picture, people can relate to each other that way. It's kind of like when I see someone who has a tattoo of something, like I know it means something to them. So I can ask them about it. And I, I feel like they never get bored of talking about whatever it is. So it's a good way just to start talking with someone about something or to mm -hmm. identify someone as they're interested in this thing and to have that connection between people. Online, it's very hard to have to start that connection. Like, who is this person? You know nothing about them. You don't know what they're wearing. You don't know any of their mm -hmm. backstory. You don't even know where they are. You at least know what language they're speaking if they're in some like forum with some thread or something like that. But that's about it. And to have a profile picture, that can really mean a lot. There's only 10,000 of them. seems like a lot, but it's not. 10,000 No, not no, no. Not compared to how many people there are in the world. No. And I think what really actually inspired this idea to make the collection, made it seem possible, was there's an NFT project, collectible project called World of Women. And it's 10,000 unique avatars, but they're all of women. But there's like 14 different skin colors and they span the whole range and like... There's also uh, green skin and red skin and rainbow skin and night sky skin, in addition to sort of more traditional skin or more realistic, I mean. But yeah, World of Women, I think what was, was really cool that I, they were the first NFTs that I actually ever bought because I felt like the visual references were not this kind of they were not NFT bro aesthetics. They just came from a visual world that I related to more. And I bought one and then I just got so sucked into the community. Like, and it's true. I did make connections with just people who owned it. If I saw that they had it as their avatar, I already knew that we had something in common and it's just been great. Like they, they have, they give money to these different funds. They give money to, oh, world of, world of women. Yeah. Wow. They give money to, she's the first, which is helps entrepreneurs in different sort of developing countries and too young to wed, which sort of battles child marriage. And they also buy NFT art by women and and then they just do all these fun things like they have contests and uh, yeah they're just they're just it really is a real community and it feels like a safe place online I think before before there was world of women I felt so alienated from kind of the nft world I just saw crypto punks making millions of dollars and I just felt like I couldn't see myself there like it really is so important to kind of see yourself represented amongst the self, the success stories to kind of know that something's possible. And that's why having diversity at sort of like the highest levels is so important. Yeah. To have uh, role models. Yeah, it's real.
Yeah. And it's the funny thing is like, if you don't see role models for you, I sometimes notice this. It's like, oh, it's my job to be the role model here. If, I, if there's no one else, yeah. that's a, that's kind of a tough step, but great that you made that too. Yeah. And I, I actually have an interview with the founders of World of Women coming out tomorrow because I really was just, I listened to a bunch of their interviews on podcasts. So I hope I'm doing the same thing here for other people. I encourage anyone who's listening to go out and make your own NFT and your own NFT, NFT collection. What would you recommend for that? Someone getting started, if you mint your own NFT, like just mint your own profile picture, one of one, not necessarily has any value, don't, don't want to sell it. Or if you want to make a collection, yeah, my advice for anyone interested in getting into the field is just to start <laughs> and not expect to do anything perfectly and maybe expect to maybe do some things that you regret. Just expect that off the bat <laughs> and not, I mean, to spend time on Twitter, I would definitely follow with foundation like Lindsay and Kayvon, who are the founders. They, they're great and they're always post like interesting art. I'm really inspired by the, I mean, their curation of foundation, which is a platform for NFTs is really cool. And I think they, they just have a real sort of like punk utopian attitude about the whole thing. And then there's other like cool influencers with like more of a market interest. Yeah. Send me any, I'll put any links in the description. Yeah. It yeah, feels yeah, like you yeah. went from like level one thinking of NFTs to like level two, level three. I'm not sure where you're at right now, but there's the level one, which is like, okay, there's a lot of people making a lot of money on this. So there's, it's valuable to some people. Also, it wouldn't be that bad to make money on something. And, and then there's that, but then there's like the, the second order thinking, which is, okay, how does this become a paintbrush? Like what's unique about mm -hmm. this? What mm -hmm. is like, what do I have that's unique that when you merge it with this special paintbrush, it has some output, which is like first in the world that the world's seen this and it's actually beneficial in some way that I care about you connecting people who will have a Medusa profile picture. I would say you're, you're a hundred percent accurate. And I think I want to clarify for myself <laughs> that it wasn't purely, I actually, the, the NFT that sold for 25,000, I didn't get any of that. It was all for, it was for open earth, which is a great nonprofit developing climate carbon accountability technology to battle climate change. But it wasn't just that money was flowing around that got my attention. It, it was partially that, but it wasn't the only thing. It was also, I made some really amazing connections in the space, like really fast. Like one of my biggest supporters is, was someone, a collector, Jihan Chu, who bought my first NFTs for very little, ended up inviting me to be in this like pretty exclusive benefit auction, then ended up buying my actual paintings. And he's not only a, a sort of big NFT collector, he's a big sort of regular collector and he's a crypto, one of the crypto advisors to Christie's, but also on the board of Parasite, which is an art, a nonprofit institute in Hong Kong. But he's just like a, an amazing connection I made. Someone that's also interested in sort of like arts, like fine arts and the arts, but also like the future of finance and technology. So it was just meeting really interesting, like-minded people and getting, finding a lot of support. In some ways it came easier than through the traditional avenues and 
so I was like, well, why wouldn't I just keep going with this? Like, see where this leads to. Yeah, if you're on the cutting edge, there's just so many opportunities that pop up and just being there. It's not a battle for scarce resources. It's it's like open field ahead. Yeah, and I just think there's just, there's a lot of, yeah, it's people are really open. I mean, I really don't want to paint this like sort of, bunnies and flowers pictures of the nft world <laughs> because it's not like great for everybody and definitely not everybody makes money but i do think it's a new field and there is a kind of openness that i see there that maybe is more natural than in other areas where things are more calcified and set in their ways and so i just appreciate i appreciate the kind of openness in the NFT world. What, have you seen any other? So there was this art auction, which is a benefit, and I'll put a link to that in the, the show notes. Any other things you see that are interesting regarding sort of sort of social impact related usage of NFTs or things like that? Yeah, I think I actually forgot to mention a very key part of my Medusa collection, which is that it's also a fundraiser. Um, it's a fundraiser for the organization Teach Rock, which is an organization that was founded by Steve Zand of the Bruce Springsteen E Street Band and had like Bono and Bruce Springsteen and Martin Scorsese as the founders. But their whole mission is to create resources that use the arts to increase engagement in public schools. Because there's a lot of schools where 40% of kids don't finish high school, and then 60% of those 40% end up serving time in prison. So there's a direct pipeline from you know, schools to prison or not having an education to being really impacted, overly impacted by sort of the prison industrial complex. And I guess studies have shown that a student that has a connection to either a class or a teacher, just one class or one teacher is much more likely to graduate high school. And arts, like they really, they help foster a more emotional relationship to content. Like they operate on a more intuitive emotional pathway than memorizing facts or sort of learning arithmetic algebra. So this is a way of using music and art to teach other more traditional skills at a school, like arithmetic, English, things like that? Yeah, I would, I mean, it's maybe a little bit harder. I mean, I think they, they have lesson plans where they do that with math and science. It's definitely a little more obviously easier to do with sort of like social studies and humanities and, and such. But yeah, they try to use arts as the gateway. Like I saw a lesson plan that was about sort of the American West, um, so to speak. And they used like Lil Nas, the the rapper, sort of like flamboyant rapper, wears like pink cowboy hats <laughs> and, and this reclamation of the cowboy. And that was the entry point for talking about something that would otherwise be very boring and totally feel completely unrelatable to a lot of kids. So yeah. that's the kind of thing they're doing. And we're actually, so a good portion of the sales are going to Teach Rock. And we're also making a 
lesson plan around the Medusa story and sort of the reframing of Medusa. So there's like a whole, which is really exciting for me because I think as an artist, an NFT artist or a traditional artist, there's always this fear that you, the content of your work gets overlooked, gets kind of by the price, by the sort of market, the market, no one's as interested in the content as they are in the sort of market dynamics of your work. So that there's like this whole thing, whole aspect to this project that is kind of untouched by, yeah, art market dynamics is, and the, just gets to be the content is really exciting for me. Yeah, that's, that's great. And one thing about that, teach rock, is it teachrock.org? And I guess they also have other kinds of music as well, not just rock. But it's kind of so obvious, maybe in retrospect, that art is so important for teaching things. People watch Hamilton and they get yeah. obsessed with U.S. history. Yeah. And I read the book Hamilton afterwards. I wouldn't have read the book. I, I might have eventually sometime in my life, but people are way more interested in the founding of the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right? No, that's a perfect example of it. Yeah. It's a perfect, perfect example of it. And it's, I, when I left the gallery, I worked um, until pretty recently, actually, as a part-time tutor, just to have some like regular income because I'm in the Bay Area and academics are so highly valued. <laughs> but it was, I was uh, working with a fifth grader and they had a colonial day. And I was just, I remember a colonial day from when I was in fifth grade and you kind of, you pretend you're like a colonizer and you know, and it's, and it's celebrated and like, it's just, I just couldn't believe this was still the lesson plan that we're still sort of like, like celebrating the colonizers and sort of this really like innocent uplifting or seemingly innocent, like uplifting of imperialism. And yeah, it just seems like, and this was in like the Bay area, which is such a progressive real, like definitely have resources like, and is liberal minded. And we're still like the curriculum hasn't been updated since I was a kid, like 30 years ago. Well, maybe not 30, like 25 years ago. And I think it just shows like how much we underappreciate teachers and schools and we just don't give them the resources that they deserve. So yeah, it's really exciting that this project will be funding more of people who will be inspired through art for other aspects of, of learning. So to talk about, let's talk about the mechanics of the NFT, because that's really interesting. You, you've, you talked about royalties before. I heard you talk about royalties on another podcast, which is something that's really interesting because usually when you sell art, the artist gets some percent and the art gallery gets some percent and that's it. The artist never gets any more money. The price might triple, go mm -hmm. up by 10X, they'll never see any more money. Right. That's kind of a shame. But with NFTs, it's not the case. And I think you're even saying that with art, physical art, it should be that way. Like mm -hmm. there's agreements for the artist to get a kick some royalty in the future. Like for a book sale, a book does really well. Artist or author will get some percent. But for art, it doesn't work that way because it's just really not possible easily to easy to do with NFTs that changes. So what is what are the mechanics of your yeah, well, of actual NFTs or so yeah, you... I mean it will it's pretty uh -huh. standard, I guess, for art for basically um, the creator of an NFT to get 10% resale so that whenever, like 10 to 15% resale so that whenever 
the owner decides they want to sell it, 10% of that sale will come back to the creator. But yeah, I was arguing for the same thing to happen in, in for artists that make work off, well, re in real life artwork, <laughs> that all artists, not just NFT artists should have this deal, basically. And, and there are companies, actually, I was talking to someone yesterday that's starting a company that's doing exactly that. So what are they called? No, no, no. They're up and running. I'll think of it and put it, we can send put me, it in the yeah, notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it aligns the incentives really well, which is something that cryptocurrencies particularly good at is aligning incentives such that it's good for everyone because if as an artist you're making a commission then you have an incentive to promote it can ongoing and feel good about the and reinvest that in other things you want to do either more art or your community or whatever it is that's pretty cool so in your case does teachrock.org also get a royalty ongoing for appreciating price i think the way we're going to have to mint it on OpenSea because OpenSea is where all the collectibles are and they have a collectible function and it's not possible to do that on OpenSea but I'll worry I mean I think I it might happen with T-Troc I think we'll we'll see kind of what we decide like what we decide on finally but yeah and so that payment to T-Troc will that be on chain that they have a wallet and they divided up there's a split it would be possible if we did it on a different platform like foundation i had a nft on foundation that sold that was also like a fundraising nft with half of the proceeds going to the headlands which is an artist residency in the in san francisco that was on chain and that was cool and the resells i think they should get half a resale too unfortunately with OpenSea, it's not possible to they just haven't set it up yet, which is really unfortunate because that would, that's like the point in some ways is full transparency, but yeah, it's just, they haven't set up that feature yet. It's so me for me, it's so cool to see those transactions on chain to the charities on Binance charity. You can see how much different organizations are, or people are contributing and then mm -hmm. where it goes which is something that's so unique. Like I deal a lot in social enterprise financing grants, nonprofits, and it's pretty opaque when the mm -hmm. money gets sent, if it gets sent. Sometimes there's a huge delay and there's no one's really held accountable for paying the nonprofit on a reasonable time scale. It might take 18 months to get them paid to do their work. Yeah. The cash flow issues and on-chain is just so much accountability. Yeah, no, anything doing good, which is I think where you heard me first, they are also that's, they intend to have the same feature, but they're a little behind. I think it's just, these are not as easy to code. I think smart contracts are actually like pretty hard to code, but yeah, I mean, in a perfect, you know, world, like, I mean, I think this is where it's all going is this kind of like full transparency and an ease of kind of like having multiple people involved in a contract. But yeah, it's just, it's early days still. And I think everyone's kind of, going as fast as they can and trying to meet the needs as best as they can. And there's a lot of money. And so you would think like it's possible, but I think there's just still technically, like technically it's quite difficult to do certain things still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is great. Anything else that you want to cover? I'd kind of be interested in knowing more about like what you do. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, so we do. Yeah. My background is I ran a biogas company in Kenya for five years, ran a Thai restaurant there. So we raised a bunch of capital for that business, but now we help other companies. So you can see on our website, the different kinds of businesses. And mostly we work with grantors like Gates Foundation, USAID, et cetera, to combine the, the capital with the project and fit these two pieces together. So that's my business. That's my main business. This podcast is for entrepreneurs for finding capital for their business. So there's mm-hmm. kind of two class, main classes of organizations. We've got for-profits and they're supposed to maximize profits mainly. And then there's nonprofits, which have some good, but like what's in between the two of those things? There's some space where there's things that are really impactful, but they need a kind of a different mechanism of getting started. And there's no formula for that. At least for now, there's no formula for it. You just kind of kind of piece it together. And nonprofits are kind of like, well, it's kind of like a weird, you know, stepchild. <laughs> so I mainly work in this middle. So we have companies like there's Uber for tractors in Africa because tractors are expensive. But if you share them amongst many people, it makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense. There's a TV show, which is a farm makeover show. So it's like a home makeover, but for farms. So your, yeah, your yeah. chickens have got uh, some bacteria and your cow died and your mangoes have worms. They bring on the expert. Yeah. Say so like, here's what you can do on your farm. And then this gets broadcast to 9 million people a week. Wow. Who watch this. So we were helping them expand to Uganda. Yeah. So that was fun. So there's lots of projects like that, that are, they're not, they're not nonprofits, but they're not really for profits. Mm-hmm. I think there's another aspect of NFTs, which is interesting is that they're tradable. So for a lot of the projects we work on, they develop some impact, let's say for mm-hmm. USAID or for Gates Foundation. But what if like some organization wanted to buy impact and they need it today? An oil company has an oil spill and they really need to you know, get some PR. They can't wait five years for the project to be over. They want to have this iconic project today on their website. Is there some way that impact can be traded? Anytime someone's in, at least in our space, I guess in for nonprofits too, when someone gives someone money, mm-hmm. it's not really free money. They're buying something. They're buying right. prestige. They're buying some feel-good aspect, they're, whatever it is, they're buying something, right? So for the U.S. government, when they donate money to some project, well, what, they, what do they want to buy? They found that it's cheaper, the ch- a cheaper way of controlling a country than starting a war is to give money to someplace, right? You could have espionage, you could have war, or you can give money and buy influence in this area. So that's what they want to buy at the end of the day, right? Got it, got it. So, but what if some organization wants, they, whatever it is that's in, in that project, like that TV show I told you about, like, and we made you smile, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's actually kind of cool, right? And so some organization might be like, yeah, I want to be associated with that. Whatever impact that thing has, I want that on my side of the table for whatever reason it might be. Maybe mm-hmm. it's an iconic project. Maybe the first microfinance institution, the project for that, maybe that's packaged as an NFT. It's the first, it's the image of this iconic meme and everyone knows about it. And I want that as a collectible for me, or maybe it's that I want to clean up my image or whatever it is. Right. I, I mean, I think in the best possible scenario, like you have an NFT that not only raises money, but basically spreads an awareness about what you do and kind of embodies your mission so that it's kind of it. And in some ways gets people to participate in the mission. Like, I think that's what's the big difference in some ways between NFTs and traditional art is the level of engagement. Yeah. What people, yeah. So I just think like with the Medusa, why it's so great is that this kind of reframing the Medusa narrative, like educating, like it's not just 
a cool looking NFT and it's not just a fundraiser, it's actually an educational tool. And that's what Teach Rock does. So what I'm saying, so mm -hmm. you can have an NFT that basically is an extension of what you do and who you are and looks cool and can potentially go up in value like and raise money for you like that's the best but i think you just have to really figure that out and for me it took i mean i've that medusa series i made in 2019 and then i've been in nfts until since february and i've been fundraising for nonprofits way longer than all of that fundraising for nonprofits since 2014 so in some ways this nft is seven years in the making yeah overnight success takes a long time as it turns out <laughs> which yeah. is really the irony of it but it, it just all came together and i think it came just because i was open and bill who runs teach rock is open and know, sometimes just the stars align but yeah i think that's like the golden if you can basically show not tell right <laughs> what you do and what your mission is through an nft great Great. So, and then if you have any links that you, of articles or anything along like that along the way that helped you learn, I'll put those in the notes. So just send, send those to me. Okay. And how should people, how can people follow you? I'm on Twitter or Instagram. My, just my name, Mika Marple. And those are, those are the best. I'm pretty responsive. You can DM me. I'll, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and you're on foundation and open sea. I'm guess, on foundation well. and on open sea. Yeah. And I have, shows coming up in various places in digital life and real life so if you want to know about those just fo follow me on instagram and twitter and I, i'm always i post daily so you'll get updates all right mika thanks so much yeah my pleasure thanks so much for having me all right that was mika marple i hope you enjoyed that recording that podcast and learned a few things if you want to dig more into nfts i'd recommend looking at the show notes you'll see a bunch of different links different people to follow on twitter to get started and there's a movie called the greatest nft film ever made on youtube it's free to watch and i think that's a good place to learn a bit more about nfts and what is possible so now we're going to do a few questions. I love hearing from you all. And if you go to wishesgranted.media, on the right-hand side, there is a microphone icon and you can record a question for me. And I'll ask a grantor who was on a previous show or I'll try to answer the question myself. And today we've got quite a few questions. So first of all, we've got a question from Suleiman in Uganda. I would like to inquire on how to access a grant for vocational training in Uganda. All right, Suleiman, thank you for that question. It sounds like a great project and glad you're helping people get vocational skills to get a job and all that. Two parts to my answer. First, I have a few links for previous grants that were related to vocational training in Uganda from PSF Uganda, ABS Foundation, Skills for Youths, and assisting children in need. And I'm going to put those links in the description. And Suleiman, what I would do is I would contact these organizations and see if they know anyone who is interested in this kind of thing currently. I think these grants are probably expired, 
but they probably know someone who knows someone. And you just have to pull the thread and keep following along and don't expect any money at any particular stage, but eventually you'll get somewhere. It reminds me of when I was starting out in my biogas business. The first funding I got was just pulling the thread. My classmate in college introduced me to his father, and I thought, this is not going to go anywhere. But then he introduced me to this woman in Kenya, and I thought, well, I don't think I'll get any money here, and I'm not sure where this is going. But then she introduced me to someone in Taiwan, and that person actually invested in my business. And so that was pretty amazing and unexpected. But for that one success that I had, I probably had 10 failures. I remember going to a friend of a friend of a friend's office in New York to pitch, and it was the worst thing in the world because I went there and I showed him pictures on my iPad of our business, but then my iPad started updating, so I lost that. And then I got there and I was like sweaty, walking through the streets, and then I tried to send him an email afterwards, he didn't even respond. It was that bad of a pitch. So sometimes you'll fail, sometimes you'll succeed, but keep on asking, keep on pulling the thread. So contact these organizations and see who they recommend you talk to. But the second part, the most important thing <clears throat> is to really be specific about what you're looking for. I see this a lot of times for entrepreneurs of all levels, not just ones just starting out, but very experienced as well, is to really be specific. Be specific about what you're looking for because, okay, Uganda is a big country. Which part of Uganda are you in? What kind of vocational training are we talking about? Welding or sewing? And what's the demographic? Are we talking uh, women? Are we talking uh, boys? Are we talking people out of prison? That makes a really big difference in what kind of money might be suitable. Because you probably won't find vocational training grants, but you might find funding to help people who are getting out of prison get up back on their feet. You might find grants for girls in Imbarara learn how to weld. So it really depends what kind of vocational training you're doing. And so this goes for everyone, anyone listening. Think about how you can be really specific about what you're looking for. How much money as well are you looking for? A thousand dollars, a million dollars. These are very big differences in how you would go about looking for money. My personal, I'm, I'm looking for, I want to buy a machine of cooking oil so that I can start producing cooking oil and uh, start uh, growing soya beans and uh, sunflower. And I want this machine so that I can boost up my business and achieve my dreams. Michael, thanks for your question. Sounds very exciting. It sounds to me like you have two businesses one growing soybeans and sunflowers, and the other one producing oil. So it might make sense to focus on one or the other, wherever you have the most competence, wherever you think you can make the most profit. So that's my, my, my first thought. I think that there's an opportunity to flesh out the idea, to get more specific. Like I said to Suleiman, like what exactly is this for? Are you producing this for the local community? Are you looking to sell to Lusaka? Are you looking to export? And so that would really determine lots of different things about where you could get money and what the opportunity investors would see. So in from that perspective, there's a few startup accelerators that you might be able to apply to in Zambia. So I'll put these in the links, but we've got Founders Institute, Founders Boost, and Bongo Hive in Zambia. I'll put those links in there and you can flesh out your idea 
when you're at that accelerator. And there's some online accelerators too, some specifically for agriculture. So I really recommend at your stage, just kind of at the idea stage, have a bunch of entrepreneurs around you, get some advisors, talk about this idea a lot, and you might end up doing a very different idea than you're thinking of right now just because of their advice. There's also a few TV shows that are useful for this, uh, Dragon's Den and Shark Tank, and I'll put the links in the description as well. That, well, it's not directly applicable. You know, you're in a different market and you're selling different products than these companies, but you get a sense for how to be really specific about your product and how to pitch your product. You know, like I said to Suleiman, you'll have to pull the thread. You never know who you're gonna meet in an elevator or friend of a friend of a friend who's got a little bit of capital. And to be honest, when you're just starting, that's all you're gonna get is just a little bit of capital, enough for a few days or a few months, but not a lot. So be prepared to start with very little. And ideally, you don't need to raise any money at all. You can bootstrap it. Think about what resources you already have. Do you have any land? Or do you have any land you can borrow for very little? I started farming recently and I found someone who had land who they weren't they weren't using it and they said I could borrow their land for free. They, I'd have to pay them anything. So there might be someone who thinks your idea is good and is willing to invest their land in you, if not their capital. So you can get started that way. So that's what I would recommend. Look, wishing the best. The next question is from Joab Mboya in Oyujis, Kenya. Hi, I work at Mother Teresa Academy School and the power supply is erratic, hence interfering with the schedule. We'd be very grateful if we could find funding to assist the children to learn better. Thank you, Joab. That is a really important thing. Kids really can't study at night without some light. And if you have computers, you can't run them without having some kind of electricity. The good news is the technical solution is pretty simple. It sounds like you already have grid power because you're saying the, the power is erratic. So you don't really need solar. What you need is a backup power supply. You need a pretty big battery and an inverter to charge that battery with your utility power from KPLC, Kenya Power and Lighting Company. So that's actually not too expensive. I remember we had a big battery like that when I worked in Kenya. I think it cost maybe 500 or or $1,000 for this enormous battery and a charge controller. And then that lasted for several days if the power went out. And we use that to power the modem and power our computers. And you could have some light in your study hall or wherever that is. So at least you have some backup if the power goes out. You can still power the computers. I mean, you can't power anything too much else because you need a much bigger battery for that. So you can't like run heating or anything like that. But for computers, for Wi-Fi, you should be good. And it doesn't, it doesn't really um, cost that much. So that's what I would recommend. And maybe you can get a loan locally. I'm sure the school has some kind of collateral to get a loan if you need a loan for at most $1,000 for that. All right, good luck. All right, that's all the questions for today. If you have a question, go to wishesgranted.media and record your question there. This podcast is sponsored by Grant & Co., a consultancy that helps social entrepreneurs raise capital. Grant & Co. is looking to hire people like you, yes, you, to write proposals, build financial models, and do design work. Go to 
thegrant.co slash jobs to apply for a job. Again, that's thegrant.co slash jobs. Mm-hmm.